All right, hi, this is Roland Fisher, lead pastor of Second City Church, and we hope that you're well. Welcome to our online service. We hope you leave today encouraged, full of faith, and ready to take the kingdom of God wherever you may go. But we just wanted you to know that we're so glad that you've chosen to join us today. And once again, welcome. Now today what we're doing is we're continuing our series, which is entitled The Big Ten. And today's message is going to be subtitled, Love the One You're With as we get into commandments number seven and eight and really find out how God applies these in our everyday life. Now, the commandments of God remind us that God is a consuming fire, burning up what is detrimental and lighting a flame for what can be eternally life-giving to us. And God's word, though always supernaturally derived, always has practical application to it. This means that God's commands are the everyday ways to love and worship Him, even as we look out for the benefit of others as well as our own. And more than a means to simply cross your will, God's commands lead to the created worlds, humanities, and ultimately your good. Now, both commandments 7 and 8 have to do with what we feel like we have versus how much we think we need to be satisfied. And so we see that in these commandments, God is sort of getting into our stuff a little bit. But what we need to remember is that in each of these commandments, God is ultimately trying to, through his word, set us free and lead us to the life to the full that he ultimately has for us. So today's focus is actually going to be on this statement, that you will experience greater satisfaction when you obey the commands of God. And so to talk about this, we're going to break it into three parts. We're going to talk first about those who are our partners. Secondly, we're going to talk about our possessions. And then finally, we're going to talk about perfect perfect satisfaction in Christ. So before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today, and we thank you that you've given it to us, that we might, again, not only know who you are and rejoice in you, but also find the freedom that you have for us and the true satisfaction that is only found in your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to grow in faith in these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's talk first about our partners. Now, what we understand is that God wants to be at the center of your desires. God wants to be at the center of your desires. And then we see that very clearly when we see commandment number seven in Exodus 20, 14, when God says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And we realize that sometimes the commands of God can somehow seem countercultural to the present environment in which we find ourselves. However, we cannot shy away from the commands of God because Jesus gave his clear instruction when on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he said in verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know that all of us want to be those who are walking with Jesus into the kingdom of heaven. And so because of that, we need to talk about things even like adultery. 
And so according to Jesus, adultery is actually not just a physical interaction, but it actually begins in the heart. And I say this because I speak to people of all types, and many times I'm talking to married folks, but other times I'm talking to people who are single. Other times I'm talking to people who desire to be married but are somewhere in between, right? And so often the question comes to me, Roland, I hear you say that a man or a woman is not supposed to commit adultery, but I'm single. What hath that doeth with me? <laughs> what does that have to do with me? Well, we see that Jesus said that it applies to not just married people, but to all people when he continued in Matthew chapter 5, 27. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And so what Jesus is saying is, ultimately, whereas we would just think of adultery as um, a man or a woman cheating on their spouse, it's not just that before God. God is actually saying that if a man or a woman looks at somebody with lustful intent in their hearts, and what that means is not just acknowledging that God has made a man or a woman handsome or beautiful, but it's actually having a lustful intent towards them meaning that they do not belong to you in the covenant of marriage. However, you still want to treat them as if they are, meaning you want to enjoy the privileges and the rights with them, whether physically, in your mind, in fantasy, or you know, just your imagination. If you desire to have them in that way, when you do not have a commitment before, that, before God is honored and established, he says, you're basically in lustful intent towards them, and that is, in God's sight, adultery. Well, why is that so? Well, if you are a married person and obviously are desiring that type of uh, inter interaction with somebody who's not your spouse, that's an obvious thing. That's adultery because that other person doesn't belong to you, and you want to fulfill with another person what, which, that which should only be fulfilled with your spouse. But in singleness, it's the same thing because ultimately lustful intent can be placed on somebody who may already in fact belong to somebody else in marriage or if they are unattached at this moment but you've not made a commitment to them, at some point they very well may be in a relationship with somebody else. And you are thinking about and imagining interactions with them that their spouse would not enjoy and God himself would not bless. And so what does God Jesus say to do about that? He says, listen, if your hand or your eyes caused you to sin, cut them off or gouge them out. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Obviously, Jesus is not um, talking about physically gouging out your eyes or cutting your hands off with, um, as a first option, but it means to cut off your access to any habit or relationship that would cause you to sin. By analogy, you can think of somebody who might have a habit of drunkenness or might have alcoholic tendencies. If they are trying to be freed of alcoholism, what they want to do is make sure that if they're hanging out with their friends, they're not choosing to do so within the environment of a bar. 
Why? Because that wouldn't promote the freedom that they're trying to get to in Christ. In the same way, Jesus is saying with regards to adultery and lust, if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. If your hands cause you to sin, cut them off. Meaning cut off the access that you would have to indulging in such things. Practically, that means that in our world of entertainment, cut off the things that would engender that in your heart. Cut off the things that you would look at, whether it be pornographic or otherwise, that would actually cause you to lust and sin in such a way that you might have momentary pleasure, but a long-term loss. What we need to understand is that ultimately, lust or adultery start off as a spiritual adultery before God. So why Timothy Keller said in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which we've re referenced throughout this series and we're going to continue to reference in this message, he said, God should be our true spouse. But when we desire and delight in other things other than God, we commit spiritual adultery. And this does not mean that we don't have enjoyment without our endeavors being designated religious. But what it does mean is that we do not make a religion out of other things other than God in which we look to delight. We want to make sure that we're honoring God first and above all things, especially in our treatment towards other individuals. And a good Lenten goal, meaning this is a season of Lent prior and leading up to Easter, a good Lenten goal may be abstaining from some of the normal entertainment, social media or otherwise, and see how your pipes get clean before God. King David, who was the king, uh, second king of Israel, who had his own failings with adultery, actually gave practical encouragement this way. In Psalm 101, verse 1, he said, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Or in other translations, it says, I will set before my eyes no vile thing. I hate the work of those who fall away, and it shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall, heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And though this was David's instruction to others, when he didn't practice this um, command and this exhortation himself, that's when he ultimately fell into the sin that was noted in the scripture with Bathsheba. And what we don't want to do in our times is sacrifice God's convictions in our lives for the sake of entertainment. We know that it's a struggle when you're inundated with a culture that's bent against biblical purity. However, God is holy and will fight for you and strengthen you to walk in the freedom of holiness. How do we know this? Well, God makes several promises throughout his word, at least two of them in Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthian church and the second letter to the Corinthian church. And in those, God, through the apostle Paul, made this first appeal. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has seized you or overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
flee from idolatry. He's saying, don't get caught up in the things that everybody else in the world is getting caught up in. Know that if God's given you a command, he's also giving you a provision and a pathway to obey it. So flee from idolatry. And not only that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 1, he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. And so whether you're single or married, adultery is a big deal before God. But adultery obviously does also apply to marriage as well. And we have compassion for those who've been through the pain of adultery and a message of hope for those who've been involved in such a sin. We know that it's a serious matter, meaning marital unfaithfulness, because it's the only legitimate justification that Jesus cites as a reason for divorce in Scripture, though things like abuse are obviously a matter that can be, uh, need to be further discussed in another session. Now, in that case, how or why, if it's such a big deal to God, why do people often justify committing adultery, especially when they uh, have a uh, knowledge of God? Well, amongst many reasons, people often cite dissatisfaction in their relationships as the reason for allowing themselves to commit adultery. And because of the relational dynamics with their significant others, those who commit adultery feel like they are withering in some form of neglect or missing something that they feel like they're due from their spouse that's not being provided. And when those in this situation feel like cultivating their present field, but cultivating their present field, meaning their present spousal relationship, won't work. They look for other pastures. This too, however, can be a form of idolatry where we've chosen the promise of a, an emotional or a physical savior, meaning somebody else providing those needs for us other than our spouse, over our devotion to God and our spouses. And that's why we need to continue to consider the words of Dr. Keller when he said an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored to harm others, even ourselves, in order to get it. Yet, idols are deceiving. You need to understand that idols, these promises of being satisfied in something other than what God has provided you, they're deceiving. Since the devil, who is the father of lies, is making empty promises through these idols. We need to always remember, especially relationally, that it is easier to love people at a distance and those that you don't really know rather than those that you do. If you participated in the club scene back in the day, you can imagine that whenever you thought about the person who was on the other side of the room in the dark while the music was bumping and how good and attractive they looked, but the closer that they got or the more sober that they, you got and they came towards you, maybe they didn't look as attractive the nearer they got. Well, the great tragedy is we idealize people we see only on social media or with whom we have minimal interactions, and we neglect and villainize the people we actually do life with, those that we live around and those who actually are in our homes. It's easier to think well of someone when you don't have to interact with them regularly. And it will always be the case that when you do interact with people regularly, you see their shortcomings and their imperfections. Ultimately, their sins because we all have them. Think about it as a vanity mirror by analogy. 
It's like it, everything might look good in a, uh, the light of a normal restroom mirror. But if you go to a vanity mirror, all of a sudden your pores become much larger in your sight and you notice blemishes that you might not otherwise have seen. And the only re reason you think so well of people you put on pedestals is because you're not close enough to them. And in this distortion, you place judgment on, criticize, and even become dissatisfied with those with whom you actually actually have the opportunity for relationship, meaning oftentimes your spouse. And this is a great, the great trap of the devil, which I like to call the greener pasture syndrome. It happens in marriages, friendships, churches, and workplaces all the time. You simply have too many options and convince yourself that you have connections with other people that you simply do not. And in the meantime, you end up neglecting the land that God has actually given you. But this isn't love that you're running after. It's actually mere fantasy. And in the case of marriage, adultery, meaning having something, a little something on the side, seems like a viable way out, but should it be? Well, Dr. Keller went on to say this in his book, that an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries, but to practice idolatry is to be a slave. And that's true even not just in our emotional state, but also in our physical state. So let's go a little bit deeper talking about sex and marriage. Now, too many people feel dissatisfied with their intimate lives because of what they watch online, thinking their lives are supposed to simulate the fabricated portrayals that they see on the screen. People grab for the greater highs that they can that can never truly be satisfied until some sort of violation, whether within or outside of the marriage covenant, exists, occurs rather. Now, God, though, wants to protect you from this while blessing you, actually blessing you with holy fulfillment. And it is not your spouse's responsibility to keep you from sin. If you are married, your body is not your own, though it is to be treated by your spouse with respect, gentleness, consideration, and honor. At the same time, though, your intimacy should not be limited to sex, but is ultimately given by God for, obviously, procreation, your pleasure, and also your protection. Now, when that is working well, everybody's happy, right? Everybody's happy. But what we do need to understand that when it's not working as it should, it is the responsibility of the spouse to love God and not commit adultery, even if the other spouse is in the sin of withholding sexually. Sin is not condoned as a response to sin. You hear me? Sin is not condoned as a response to the sin. If somebody, meaning your spouse, is not treating their body as if it belongs to you, and that works both ways, for men and women and women and men, and they're somehow having a power play against you, and somehow are saying, you know what, it's on my time, on my terms, and ultimately you feel deprived or neglected in this area. God will not bless your response to that by adultery, you sinning yourself to have your needs met. There will be different seasons of ups and downs in life and times that you feel closer or less connected to your spouse than others. 
Sometimes you'll feel so intimate and great. It'll be a honeymoon period that's often uh, revisited throughout your marital commitment to one another. But other times it may be strained. However, in every season, God has given marriage to be a place of safety, security, encouragement, and protection as you are passing through these varied times. And deeming your relationship emotionally, sexually, or even financially unsatisfying does not give you permission to look outside of your covenant to have your needs met. The first place we need to go in all things is to God and His Word and in prayer to have our soul, meaning our mind, our will, and our emotions, filled in Him. And from that place of renewed strength, we have hope to cultivate our marriages for the good, even as there may be suffering while you wait on that hopeful change. This too, you need to know, is participating in the sufferings of Christ. And it's also why in our marriage vows, oftentimes you hear at the altar people say that there's a commitment in sickness and in health because you need to demonstrate that type of self-control for all seasons and all circumstances. But is there a prolonged hope? Well, enjoying the life within which you found yourself can be realized when you learn to patiently and persistently cultivate the land or the relationships that God's entrusted to you, meaning marriage. And there's hope for you in marriage that you'll be able to thrive in your communication, intimacy, and purpose together as you submit all three of these things to Jesus Christ together. When you meet God in each of these areas, it fills you to understand that your fidelity to your spouse, who you can see, is to be a reflection of your faithfulness to God, who you can't see. And fidelity is about loving God before and even above you loving your spouse. By loving God, who is unchanging, you gain a deeper appreciation for your spouse, who will forever be changing. If they're in Jesus, they'll be continually sanctified, becoming more like Christ. But also, as you age, they'll continually be changing, both physically and mentally. And adultery is quenched by the fear of the Lord in an active cultivation of the relationship that you have with your spouse. And in marriage, this is God's promise to you. You can be satisfied in Him. That's the good news. But it's not just a good news for your relationship with your partner, but also your dealings with your possessions. And the truth is, you don't have to steal that which God wants to provide. That's what commandment number eight tells us. Exodus twenty fifteen says, You shall not steal. You shall not steal. And in the very real and no judgment event that you've fallen on hard times, especially during this pandemic, we ask you, please do not feel like you need to steal to meet your needs. If you or someone you know is dealing with food scarcity or basic needs of clothing and shelter not being met, the good news is there are various loving church ministries with whom we partner throughout the city that can help meet those practical needs while you're looking to get back on your feet. Please reach out to us and let us know. No one needs to suffer in silence. But in an everyday experience, people often steal when they are convinced that they do not have enough or that there is no help for their practical situation and their need. But we don't want to steal, according to this command, from other people or from God. Well, what are you talking about when you're talking about 
stealing from God. I know what you're talking about when you steal, talking about not stealing from other people, but what do you mean not stealing from God? Well, when you understand God as your provider, you know that every need will be met as you are diligent to follow his commands, working hard and stewarding his resources according to his commands. And when God is your source, you will not steal because you know that you ultimately cannot keep that which God does not bless. So I don't want to steal it only to lose it because God's not going to bless it. We want to first make sure that we're not robbing God. And in the book of Malachi, it's a familiar passage to many people, but the prophet was speaking on behalf of God when God spoke about what it means to rob him. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And so the first thing when God's saying do not steal is he's saying, don't just worry about not stealing from other people. He says, don't rob me. Rob him how? By withholding from him tithes and offerings. The tithe meaning tenth. The first tenth of all that God provides us in the provision that he gives us, it says belongs to him. And when God says that we should tithe, it's ultimately renewing and reestablishing our trust in the fact that God is not only our source, but he should be honored as such, that we should give to him that which he demands, that we, he might continue his kingdom purposes. And Dr. Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, actually says it, even in a New Testament mentality, this way. Have we received more of God's revelation? truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Are we more debtors to grace than they, um, than they were or less? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us or did he give it all? Tithing is the minimum standard for Christian believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did for them. And you might say to yourself, well, what would even, even tempt me to think that way? Well, the truth is, is again, it all goes back to idolatry. And in the scripture, the New Testament, God calls greed idolatry. And that's why Dr. Keller went on to say, Jesus warns people far more about greed than about sex. Yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with the working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. 
but we don't want to rest in it being a problem, but we want to instead rise up in faith and trust in God, doing things God's way, not stealing from him, giving him what he demands of us, but then additionally reaping the benefits of us, the benefits of trust in him, where he says in Malachi, he makes sure to rebuke the devourer from our lives and also make sure that he's pouring out such a blessing on our lives that not only are our needs met, but that we are blessed, in fact, to be a blessing to others according to the covenant that he's called us to. But it doesn't just apply to stealing, doesn't just apply to God, it also applies to others. And it's not just talking about stealing maybe some groceries from a uh, convenience store, but it also goes into how we're actually executing the work that God's entrusted to us on a daily basis. And especially in things like remote work that's, uh, I guess, been elevated during the pandemic period. Do not steal means making sure that in integrity, you're working the hours for what you are being paid and not undercutting or shortchanging your employer. And it means remembering that in all things, you are working for the Lord and not just for people, and that your reward will ultimately come, even in the workplace, from the Lord. This is also why you want to be able to achieve proper boundaries in life, because if you're working for the Lord and your reward is coming from Him, that's your trust, then you'll be able to work when He says to work and set boundaries when He says not to work. This is what Colossians 3, 22 through 25 tells us whenever Paul's talking about bond servants who are basically like employees and their masters, which are basically like their employers, where he says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. You see, this is all uh, remote work language, pandemic language, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And so we see that God knows our needs, and there are so many promises regarding his provision in the Scripture. And when you have God as your source, you have a greater faith, not less, but greater faith, encouragement, and ingenuity for righteous provision because you know that it is the Lord who actually gives you the power to produce wealth when you do things His way. This is the promise of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which was also part of the Torah, where God says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And therefore, we do not have to steal, but can be satisfied with the provision of the Lord doing things his way. And ultimately, that leads us to not only just finding satisfaction in our partners, not only is finding satisfaction with our possessions, but also having perfect satisfaction in Christ. And you can live a truly satisfying life with Jesus at the center. In Jesus, not only was the wrath of God satisfied for our sins against our holy God, but he became the existential solution to our soul's 
deepest needs for satisfaction. What do I mean by that? Well, in all the things that people are ultimately pursuing, relationships, health, provision, purpose, pleasure, and ultimately soul-gratifying worship of some type, what we see in Jesus is that when we sow into that which he's pleased with and that which he approves, meaning obeying his commandments, not only are our needs met initially or temporally, but we get to keep them and we're satisfied in them eternally. You look at each and every one of those. In the relationships, he gives us an eternal, ever-living family through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our health, we have eternal vitality as we choose to put our faith in Jesus and obey his commands. That according to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll have a new body and a new spirit. The resurrected body, like Christ, no longer perishable, but given to us as imperishable, an eternal vitality as a reward to those who put their trust in Jesus. In provision, he says that we can store up for ourselves treasures, not here on earth, but in heaven. When we give to God and do things his way, it's an eternal reward, an eternal treasure that we'll have in him. Our purpose, having an eternal responsibility and reward for obedience to him, ruling over cities, according to Matthew 25 and Luke 19, that there'll be a stewardship of ruling and reigning with Christ when we are eternally satisfied in him. Pleasure. Psalm 16 says, you know, that there are eternal pleasures at the right hand of God, meaning that the very joys and satisfaction of life, being in the very presence of God, will be fulfilled as we come into our heavenly home in him as we put our trust in Jesus. And so gratifying worship that Jesus even said, now this is eternal life, that you might know the only living God and Jesus Christ who he sent. So in every way, both physically, emotionally, existentially, in every way, God's given us an eternal satisfaction that can only be met in Christ. That means that whatever I sow into can have an enduring and a lasting benefit, satisfaction, and a reward to it by faith as I give myself to that which God commands me. And so the cross of Jesus becomes a beautiful thing to me because in it, not only did he fully satisfy the wrath of God, taking the punishment that I deserve because of doing things my own way and rejecting God's way, but he also opened the door, Jesus did, to which all true needs can be truly and ultimately satisfied in me when I obey his commands, whether it's now or in the life to come. So even if you feel like you get to your the day of your passing on, falling asleep and going on to the other side, and some of those needs that haven't been met, well, that which truly satisfies your soul, relationally, provisionally, and ultimately life-giving eternally will be yours in Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. And so we call you into that today and say, how, regardless of how you've been living, whether as a single person or a married person, find your satisfaction in Christ. And then from that place, live in the great freedom and purity that he wants you to give to the world. Find your 
rest and satisfaction in God's provision, knowing that he's your provider and that you don't have to hoard it or actually keep from him what he's due because he wants to give you everything that you need as your only. Not only that, but give you great faith for producing the wealth that will provide blessing to not only your family, but other people as you, they see, as you see need. And finally, there'll be a soul-satisfying rest in Christ. Soul-satisfying rest in Christ where you say, I no longer, no longer have to look to find satisfaction in idols that offer me empty promises, but I can find my satisfaction in Christ. And if you uh, will choose to do so, you can find that with him at the cross, at his throne today. So I want to pray first for those who say to themselves, you know what? I've never given my life to Jesus. And if I were to stand before God today at his throne of judgment, I would know that I've been an adulterer. I would know that I've been a thief and I've stolen from God and others. And I've ultimately not found my satisfaction in Christ and I deserve death and hell but I don't want it and I want to come into what Jesus did for me today. If that's you, would you pray this prayer with me? God Almighty, I admit to you today that I'm a sinner and I admit to you that I've lived as an adulterer and as a thief in my life before you. I know that I was wrong for doing these things, but I'm asking you to forgive me. God, would you not only Help me to believe that Jesus lived the perfect life that I should have lived, but on the cross that he died the sacrificial death that I should have died. So that three days later after he went to the grave, he rose again so that I could have forgiveness of my sins and new life in him. God, I say that Jesus is my Lord today and I'm asking you to make me a new creation. Would you free me to live this life of full joy and satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus from this point forward. Thank you for your love for me. In your mighty name, amen. Now the good news is, is if you prayed that prayer, God said he's made you a new creation. So would you go with me to our website, secondcitychurch.com slash new life. There you can find not only resources, but next steps of how to walk out this new life in Christ. And for the rest of us, before we go back into worship, I want to pray for us that wherever you find yourself, both with partners and possessions, that God might give you great faith for the satisfaction that you can find obeying his commands and finding rest in him. And so God, I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters today to rise up in faith and to find great provision and satisfaction in you. God, I pray that you would cut them free from the bondage to fear, fear from not being satisfied in their relationships, fear from not being satisfied in their um, provision. And instead, God, that you would give them great confidence, hope, and an ability to cultivate their relationships, to produce wealth by obeying your commands and following your ways so that every need of theirs might be met, whether now or in the life to come. In Jesus' name, strengthen them with great hope for this cause. Father, whether they're for their present or future marriages, in Jesus' name. And God, I pray that you would heal and restore those who have really walked under the damage of the sin that's so prevalent in our homes nowadays. God, would you heal and restore them 
and help the trust that has been broken be restored in many relationships that I even see today. And God, would you help them to have hope for a future of not only love, but trust in you and one another once again by your restorative power. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to continue to discuss these matters in our community groups this week. And so if you've not yet found an option, please do visit our website where you can find both in-person and virtual options. We'll be praying for you this week, so please do let us know how we can be standing with you. And also think about how you can share this link with others who need to also be lifted by the grace of God. Please do invite your friends next week where they can also hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And until then, have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you and we love you.